Good to be back home. Matthew 5, and uh, we're going to pick right back up in Matthew 5, 31. And we're going to look down through verse number 37 today. And uh, the title of the sermon this morning is, uh, is Loopholes in Righteousness. Loopholes in Righteousness. And you might be thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Is he going to give us some loopholes? <laughs> uh, hopefully not. <laughs> hopefully not. Hopefully I, hopefully I don't encourage you to find more loopholes. We're pretty good at that ourselves. But uh, we're continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, remember, we're looking at the examples, the examples of true righteousness that Jesus is putting forth. And uh, remember, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, in giving these examples, what we've been seeing is that Jesus is dispelling some of the, the common misinterpretations or the common misapplications of the law. Uh, so in, in a sense, in one way, he's taking the law beyond the letter to its true intent, beyond the letter to its deeper significance in the life of the righteous person. Uh, one who here um, is listening to Jesus and presuming to follow him. He was speaking here to his disciples, and there were others gathered to him, but he's speaking to those who are seeking to follow him. And he's saying, this is what true righteousness looks like. And in the first case, uh, we saw murder, or you shall not murder, which on its face, remember, seems like a pretty easy commandment to keep, one in which almost everyone can say, well, I'm not guilty here. I've never murdered. I've, I've never killed anyone. I'm righteous in this category. But when Jesus revealed the, the deeper sense of that law, shows us that even hatred and insult are culpable as murder in the heart, he brought the law to bear on everyone, and not just according to the letter, but by the true depth. And the same was true with adultery, as we saw last week. It's, it is not righteousness simply to not commit adultery in a physical way. It is not righteousness to, to not simply commit sexual sin like adultery. It's righteousness, Jesus says, to not lust in the heart. Uh, one way I was thinking of it this week and uh, it's been helpful to me is, is that Jesus here, as he gives us these explanations, he's not merely after behavior modification. Now, Obeying the law certainly will avoid and influence certain behaviors, but if we follow Jesus' teaching carefully, we find out that we can live our life having never physically murdered and never physically committing adultery, yet still be guilty on those accounts because of the anger and lust within our heart. So Jesus is not after mere physical or uh, behavioral Modification. No, he's after a true and changed heart. As we continue in this text, we're going to look at the next two examples together. And uh, in these two examples, Jesus moves beyond the Ten Commandments. Both you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery are, are part of the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the, the basic form of God's law. And he moves outside the Ten Commandments. Um, he's still dealing with things that are in the book's of Moses, and it becomes clear or more clear in these examples that 
Jesus isn't giving a complete exposition and an explanation of every single law or even every facet of all the laws in his teaching, but he's explaining principles and truth that will guide us as we look at this, as we look at how do we follow God's law. So let's look at Matthew 5, verses 31 through 37. I'm going to read those to begin today. Jesus said, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, as we look at these two examples, even though they're pretty distinct in their individual context and meaning, um, the issue at hand is sort of basic, and it's, it's, it's sort of true for both of them. These two explanations uh, reveal a deeper tendency that we all probably have and struggle with, maybe even on a daily basis. Now, I want to start with a disclaimer. Jesus is going to address the first topic, um, divorce, again in Matthew chapter 19, and he does so there in depth. So instead of devoting two full sermons in the book of Matthew to that topic, uh, I want to take a flyover view today and try to unearth the principles behind the explanation that he gives. And in a few months, hopefully months, uh, we will come to, to Jesus' fuller teaching in Matthew 19, and we'll even look at a number of other passages in Scripture that give uh, maybe the Bible's more full teaching on divorce and remarriage. And uh, you might be asking then, what do divorce and oaths or, or uh, pledges or promises or vows, however you want to say it, what do those two things have to do with one another? Well, one way that these two things are related is that as we look at the background, both teaching on divorce and teaching on oaths or taking oaths are things which the Old Testament law seemed to regulate, but it doesn't seem to either explicitly forbid or commend. In the case of divorce, it is regulated, but it's not prescribed necessarily. In the case of oaths, they are not forbidden, but they are forbidden in certain ways. Now, in our day and age, we might look at things like this, and, and we might say, well, there's a lot of gray area here. And uh, that's kind of where these two things come together in Jesus' teaching. It seems from the way that Jesus talks about these things, both divorce and oaths, that, that they were widely abused in that day. And the, the small amount of Mosaic teaching on them had led people to sort of run rampant with their abuse of these two things. Now, in both of these instances, Jesus is addressing the ideas themselves, but he's also addressing a problem that 
that we might call loopholes. Now, we all know what a good loophole is, right? Uh, I can give an example. When I was in college, uh, we had chapel services uh, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at, I think, 9.30 or 9.45 in the morning. And uh, there was a rule on the books that unless you didn't have a class before or after chapel, attendance to chapel was mandatory. Okay, pretty simple. Now, the problem was that rule could be read in one of two ways. Um, you could either read it as... If you have a class before or after chapel, you have to go to chapel. Or you could read it as, if you don't have a class either before or after chapel, you don't have to go to chapel. There's a slight difference there, and it's really subtle, but there is a difference. Well, guess which interpretation most of the students took? Well, the more lenient one, of course. Everyone knew that the heart behind that rule was, if you were there on the campus at chapel time, you should go to chapel. And uh, that was probably a good rule to have. We should go to chapel. And, and I did, most of the time, go to chapel in college. Um, you were expected to be there if you had a class before or after. But the dance of interpretation allowed for a loophole. Now, that little example applies to many things in life. Whenever there's an, a law or a, an expectation, a principle, uh, and there's interpretive room, we tend to take the lesser of the two meanings. We tend to take the more lenient one. And uh, this is what is going on, I think, in Jesus' day in these topics of divorce and oaths. He's addressing, that is, Jesus is addressing the tendency in human beings to sort of feign righteousness by grabbing onto a loophole or, or grabbing onto a minuscule interpretive <clears throat> gap that allows us to act as we would without technically sinning. But what has he already taught us in the first two examples? He's already taught us that if there is sin in the heart, even before an action is committed, there's, there's guilt there in the heart. And Jesus continues to show in, in this passage today that those who are counting on being technically righteous by the letter of the law or by a loophole in the law are in fact riddled with unrighteousness. It has to be more than skin deep. We've already seen that. It has to be more than letter deep, and it has to produce more than just a loophole-seeking tendency. The goal is a changed heart. And the big idea we see today, at least that I see in this text, is this. Human tendency is to excuse, normalize, and explain sinful behavior. But kingdom obedience, call it whatever you want, true righteousness, kingdom obedience, that requires faithfulness that displays God's faithfulness. I think we see that today in this text. So let's look at it together, and uh, we'll look at them sort of in a pair today. So first thing we see, if you have your notes there, if you have the bulletin or if you're taking notes, we see two, uh, two mosaic regulations. Two mosaic regulations. 
both in uh, verse number 31 and 33, we have the, that similar phrase again. It was said, or you have heard it said to those of old. He, he goes back to the scripture here. And again, we need to be reminded that in no way is Jesus doing away with or nullifying the teaching of Moses. The law of Moses was revelation from God to Moses. And for Jesus to turn his back on those things would be to betray the very being of God himself. Jesus is not saying that Moses is wrong or that the law is wrong. Jesus actually is fulfilling it. We've already seen that. He is what it points to. Each one of these regulations comes from a specific scripture that Jesus is quoting, and he's dealing with the scripture and its interpretation. But for a little background, let's look at these scriptures. Uh, the first one comes from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. It says this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Now, that was a lot. And notice in that example, it's interesting. Now, this is, in the five books of Moses, this is the text on divorce. It's the one that deals with it. And when it comes to this, there is no positive command here. This teaching in Deuteronomy is the one main place in Moses' writings that deals with divorce at all, and it is not commanding that divorce should happen. Now, what it is, do is doing is regulating some circumstances that follow a letter of divorce. Now, the passage, those four verses are sort of long and wordy, but if you read back through it, and if you follow it, you'll notice that it is a, a series of if, 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 and then finally, then. This passage was prohibiting a certain kind of uh, abomination, as the scripture calls it, that would take place. There's sort of a, a double restriction. There was a letter of divorcement, and then there was a prohibition of of remarriage to that spouse. Now, this law was pointing to the sanctity of marriage, that it was something that had to be dealt with seriously. It couldn't be dealt with flippantly. And it also protected against hasty divorces. That is, if a man in a fit of rage or some sort of stupor decides that he no longer wants his wife and puts her out of the house... And then she marries again because in that culture it was difficult for a woman to be unmarried. And then that man also divorces her. Then the first husband couldn't say, well, I regret my decision her back again. This was to point to the sanctity of marriage and to, and to reduce or, or to, uh, to, uh, to speak out against hasty divorces. So the plain reading of that scripture was not to teach 
permission or denial of divorce in itself. The, the purpose of the teaching was not to command it. The purpose of the teaching was to regulate the circumstances if and when it happened. So it is a regulation because of divorce, not a prohib prohibition or a rubber stamp on divorce itself. It's a little bit confusing. I hope that you're following me there. Now, Jesus has more to say on that in the New Testament, and we'll take a look at it in a few minutes. But keep that in your mind. Keep that in your mind. The text that is being quoted is not commanding divorce, but regulating it. Now, what about the second topic that we're looking at? What about oaths? Well, the main passage comes from Leviticus 19.12, which says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. This is not a verse about, uh, about swearing, as in using four-letter words. Uh, it's, it's a verse about uh, making a promise with the, Lord, the name of the Lord as a backer or a guarantee, and then you shall not swear or promise falsely by my name, the Lord says. This is a, uh, a specific command about oaths. You shall not swear by God's name falsely. That is, there's something tied to the sacredness and the holiness of God's name that abhors uh, making these false promises. In other words, to tie a, a promise to God's name was seen as a debt to God that must be paid. Now, there's some other passages that, uh, that Moses specifically writes that deal with this. Numbers 30, verse 2 is another one. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So the law was not decrying oaths or vows or promises. It was promoting truthfulness. So in these two cases, we see that the law is really promoting faithfulness in marriage and truthfulness in word. And those things seem relatively simple, except what seems simple becomes complicated when we add human beings into the mix, especially with our propensity to look for loopholes. So what are the loopholes? We see here two contemporary distortions. That is, two distortions that took place at the time of Jesus. Start again with divorce. In the first century, uh, there were two schools of thought in, in Jewish teaching uh, about divorce. They were primarily the, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. Um, Shammai and Hillel were rabbis, and according to historians of the day, they were alive at least at or just before the time of Jesus' ministry. And they, uh, they represented, as it were, two opposing views of divorce. Now, Shammai, Rabbi Shammai, took a hard line. He read Deuteronomy 24, that text that we read, and he insisted that the only justifiable reason for divorce was adultery or sexual impurity. Rabbi Hillel took a permissive view. He read the same text, Deuteronomy 24, and insisted that some unclean thing or, or something that was unpleasing to the husband there could be anything that displeased the husband. And by anything, he meant anything. He and his followers interpret anything 
up to and including the wife not being pleasing in the eyes of her husband anymore. Or even if the wife was prone to burning dinner, that was seen as a justifiable cause or, or uh, grounds for divorce. Now, according to the historians of the day like uh, Josephus, Rabbi Hillel's view was the prominent one. And it's usually summarized as divorce for any cause. Divorce for any cause. Those in these groups then grabbed onto that little phrase in Deuteronomy. Remember the, the little phrase, a letter of divorcement. They grabbed onto that, and for them, it was their ticket to freedom. Now, a letter of divorcement was to be given to a wife who was let go or sent away by her husband to officially document that she was free and that she could marry again. In a society where women were highly dependent on marriage, this was to ensure that the woman was not ultimately abandoned. But the letter of divorce, which was meant to be a measure to protect the wife, became a loophole for rampant and hasty divorce. The very thing that Deuteronomy 24 seems to be decrying. Now, divorce was never the intention in marriage. It was never part of God's design. Later in Matthew 19, Jesus will teach that divorce was permitted, notice that word, permitted because of the hardness of hearts. That is, because of the sinfulness and stubbornness of humans, divorce is allowable in certain circumstances to protect the innocent party but it was not part of the design. We can't look at this text fully today, but listen to the words in Matthew 19. The Pharisees came up to him, to Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Do you hear that little phrase, for any cause? That's Rabbi Hillel's teaching there. That was the common teaching. Now, in classic Jesus fashion, he answers by not taking sides at all. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. By Jesus' day, divorce for any cause was rampant. Now, we speak of uh, the decay of society, uh, which generally starts with the decay of, of the family, and we see that in our nation. Uh, we live and have lived for some time now in a, in a culture where, where the divorce rate is somewhere around 50%, and that is even including uh, what we might call evangelical Christians. And we bemoan that for sure, absolutely. We decry it. But it seems that in Jesus' day, even in Israel, the rate was also rampant. Something had been lost in the sanctity of marriage, in the holiness of that bond. The letter of divorce, which was, which was simply a permissive thing, not a command. That letter was abused, it was misused, and it was utilized as a loophole. 
More on that in a minute. What about oaths? Well, apart from the Mosaic law on oaths, there was much in, uh, in the Mishnah, that is the collection of teachings that carefully traced the kind of oaths that you could take that were specifically not in the Lord's name. There's a distinction there. Well, these oaths that were not in the Lord's name, well, they became a loophole in themselves as well. You see, nobody would want to be guilty of falsely swearing by the name of the Lord. In other words, you invoke God's name and say, unless I do this, may the Lord, may the Lord have his wrath upon me or something like that. Nobody wanted to make a promise in the Lord's name and not keep it because that was clearly forbidden in the law. But what if you needed to make a promise that there's a chance you might break? Well, the solution was that you, you swear by something lesser, something like heaven and earth, something like Jerusalem, the city. These were, after all, still large and important things, but they weren't the Lord's name. So think of it this way. Invoking the name of the Lord in a pledge or an oath is to say, if I break my word, may the Lord himself hold me accountable. That's a strong statement. And in the law, and even in the wisdom literature of the scripture, we know that the Lord places a high value on truthfulness. Listen to these scriptures. Leviticus 19.11. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. Another scripture, Proverbs 19, verse 9. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. So to swear by something to lessen the severity was a solution, they thought, to the problem. But the problem is heaven and earth can't hold you accountable. Jerusalem, as a city, can't hold you accountable. It seems that taking these oaths by lesser things also became a cultural norm, kind of like divorce for any cause. It was a way to bolster your trustworthiness. But taking them in such a flippant way was to defeat the purpose of the oaths themselves. Some contemporary writers say the oaths were so common that people took oaths for anything and everything. They were so ubiquitous that they had lost their meaning. So these are the two things that Jesus then is up against. Divorce for any cause and oaths for every promise. And both of those things, listen, both of those things lessened the value of what God's law intended. And both utilized loopholes that propped up a false righteousness. So there's two mosaic regulations, two contemporary distortions. Then we see two radical declarations. Now here's where the irony comes in. Jesus' responses to these common misapplications shows us again that trying to hold up righteousness by the letter of the law, or in this case, by loopholes, it does just the opposite. It only creates more unrighteousness. So let's go back to the text. Look at verse number 32. But I say to you, Jesus says, that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, 
And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, there's a lot of debate, even in Christian circles, about what is called the acceptive clause in Jesus' teachings. The questions are, when is divorce permissible? When is remarriage permissible? Is remarriage after divorce permissible? These are important questions. And good people, it's important to understand, good people have come down on varying interpretations of those things. We will hopefully cover uh, the different interpretations and the other texts in Scripture when we come again to Matthew 19. But let me say a word here as a pastor, as a brother. Listen, in all the Bible, in no way is Jesus holding up divorce as the unforgivable sin. Jesus recognizes in his teaching, as do the other authors of Scripture, that divorce will take place because of human sinfulness. All of us have, in one way or another, been affected or witnessed a marriage that unraveled because of sin. Nobody, nobody would wish that on anybody. You and me the same. I I have watched closely loved ones who have suffered terrible mistreatment and unfaithfulness from a spouse. And while divorce was not part of the original design, neither was adultery, unfaithfulness, abandonment, and the like. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. So don't hear a a cold heart or a holier-than-thou attitude toward divorce It breaks God's heart as much or more, probably more, than it breaks yours. But there's another side to that coin as well. We must take incredible care not to go in the opposite direction. We live in a society uh, filled with things like prenuptial agreements, no-fault divorce, and the avoidance of marriage altogether. Did you notice that we read Matthew 19, how Jesus' teaching on this subject went directly back to God's creation of man and woman in his image and their bond together, signifying a divine wedding and the couple being one flesh. God's institution of marriage precedes any other human institution that there is. There's a forsaking of all other romance, a forsaking of the lesser bonds for the sake of the permanence and sacredness of the marriage bond. Yet today, like in Jesus' day, divorce is usually looked at as trivial, even as normal, even comical in some cases. May this not be our attitude. Marriage itself pictures God's design and God's faithfulness. And to break that bond just flippantly and joyfully is to disregard the image of God in one another and the holiness of the union that he has created for his glory. Jesus' words about divorce and remarriage are strong in a culture like ours. They were strong in a culture like his as well. Without going into extreme detail today, let's suffice it to say this. Serial divorce and remarriage, divorce for any cause, 
while holding on to it as a loophole in the law to prop up righteousness, ends up making people swim in a sea of adultery. And we've seen that in our culture today. It was very likely that some in Jesus' own audience that day had taken advantage of that divorce for any cause interpretation. And they did so to avoid breaking the law. They gave the letter of the divorcement, no doubt. They, they wanted to do it right, but they missed, they missed the fact that marriage was never intended to be that way in the first place. And sometimes we do so, we find these loopholes to be able to, to prop up righteousness while still being able to act upon our own lust. And just as Jesus has said in the previous verses that lust begins in the heart, Jesus here teaches that, that this illegitimate, unnecessary divorce is adultery in the heart. It is unfaithfulness. It is a disregard of that union. It makes the innocent party the victim of adultery. That's one translation of, of makes her commit adultery. Because the permanent bond is illegitimately broken. And since the divorce wasn't recognized by God, remarriage in that case makes more adultery because it's another union with already married people. Now, I understand this is difficult. But you see how this divorce for any cause loophole, which men used to prop up their obedience, made them transgressors of the law instead. May these things not be so flippant to us. May we never be so flippant and trivial about the beautiful union that God designed. And if you have been a victim of unfaithfulness and some legitimate divorce, you know it's not trivial. You know it's not a small thing. Even if culture and popular interpretation makes it out to be such. What about oaths, again? Verse number 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, in trying to avoid taking an oath or swearing by God's name and, and breaking that vow and profaning the name, invoking guilt on their behalf, men would swear by lesser things. Now, not only does that seem ridiculous, uh, as earth and heaven and Jerusalem, again, they have no authority over, over guilt or innocence, but Jesus also reveals that any of these oaths are, in fact, still binding as if they were in God's name. Heaven is God's throne. Earth is his footstool. And the people knew this from the Psalms, which say that. Jerusalem is his great city. And even the hairs on your head, 
reveal that ultimately God is in control and he's ruling even over them. Now this is comical, uh, but we go to great lengths to preserve and shape and, and color our hair, but the truth is that we don't have sovereignty even over our own hair, do we? It falls out when it is time. It grows or doesn't grow in places that we don't desire, and its color changes without us asking it to. And uh, repeated temporary dyings uh, remind us that we are fighting a losing battle. I don't mean to make light of that, but it's, it's just the case. I think Jesus gave a little irony there. What is Jesus saying? All these oaths are still promises ultimately before God. Because God is over all these things as well. We are just as guilty and culpable if we make a promise and break it, whether we use God's name in it or not. We're just as guilty and culpable if we swear by God's name as if we are, if we swear on our mother's grave. It doesn't make a difference. Untruthfulness is untruthfulness. Now, Jesus is not making a new law that we're never to take an oath or a vow. Even the Apostle Paul does these things in the right way. 2 Corinthians 1.18, for instance, Paul says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. In other words, God make, or Paul makes a promise or a, a guarantee based on the faithfulness of God. That's, that's an oath, in a sense. Another place, uh, Galatians 1.20. Paul says again, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. So Jesus is not is making a law that we should never make a promise like this, but he is demanding that true righteousness does not look for a loophole in keeping our word. And he says this, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So a question for us would be, how do we do this, or how do we not do this? And uh, I can't answer that for you, but I did a lot of thinking in my own heart, and uh, I, was, I was personally convicted on two fronts in this regard. One is the flippant making of promises. And the second is the careful wording of a promise to give myself an out. Now, we've all made empty promises. I'm guilty of that. We tell our children, if you do that one more time, then and we give some threat of discipline that we don't follow through when the action happens again in the next moment. We tell people, I'll be there as long as, and then we give some qualification that gives us an easy out. Perhaps the most heinous one, though, that I commit, maybe you can relate with this. Someone might ask me to do something, to be a part of something, to commit to something, and at my heart, being a people pleaser and not wanting to disappoint, instead of just saying no, when I know the answer is no, I'll say something like, I'll pray about it and get back to you. Now, hear me out. Promising to pray for something is, is good. James teaches us to make our plans by saying, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. But in my own life, I know that I have abused the disguise of a prayerful attitude in order to avoid simply having a direct answer. 
And I know in my heart, as small and trivial as that might be, it's like Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 5, uh, I believe Solomon wrote this, and he said, it is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. When I commit to things, I ask myself, do I intend to keep that commitment? When somebody asks me a favor or or a question, or to be somewhere, or do something, and I say, because I know they want to hear yes, and I say yes, am I saying that because I'm going to keep that commitment, or am I just saying it to make myself look better? Do we commit to things and intend to keep the commitment as long as something better or more convenient doesn't come up? Do we make promises that are knowingly conditional never intending to keep it, to these things Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now with all that said, these two things that Jesus has spoken of in these verses, divorce and vows, well, they come together in a unique way, don't they? In our culture, to signify the importance and the bond of marriage, we have ceremonies where we take vows before one another, before an audience of witnesses, and most importantly, in a in Christian marriage, before the Lord. A man and woman fall in love. Traditionally, a man proceeds to propose to the woman. They're engaged, they set a date, and on that day, they, before God and these witnesses, we say, promise themselves fully and inseparably to one another, as is the teaching in Scripture. Yet, yet, so often this happens with a back door to that marriage already open. I'll pick on men because, as they say, I is one. Men make a vow before God and their wife and their family and their friends that they will love, honor, and cherish and be faithful to the woman so long as they both live. Yet a few years pass, time takes its toll on mind and body, and that commitment so often wavers and in lust, adultery is committed. That is not only a breaking of a promise, it's the disregard of marriage, and it's something that God cares deeply about. Faithfulness is broken. Which leads us to the last thing for today. One principle summation. These two ideas, divorce and oaths, they meet in this area of faithfulness. Think of it this way. Marriage is not a contract to be canceled when it's no longer convenient, but it's a sacred union that calls for faithfulness. Our word is not something that is binding simply when we invoke a vow or a pledge. Our word ought to be binding simply because we gave it. At the end of this section in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a summary that is gut-wrenching but powerful where he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, last week, Scott gave a wonderful message that pointed ultimately to the grace and help, the strength that we get from Christ in being made holy. 
And dear ones, these areas that we've looked at today are areas where we need that grace and that strength. And think of it this way. Even though Jesus' conclusions would have been radical, and they still are radical in culture, obedience in those areas is really not that radical. Because obedience in both of these areas is simply to be faithful. Do you see that it is the will and desire of Christ that we would reflect his holiness and his righteousness? And if anything can be said about God's nature, it is this. God is faithful. God is faithful when we are not. God is faithful to keep his word when no one else does. God does not neglect his people even when we fall short. God is faithful and he calls us to be faithful. God does not seek loopholes of how he can abandon us when the going gets tough. God doesn't try to wiggle his way out of promises when they're no longer convenient to keep. God's faithfulness is undying, unfailing, steadfast, and sure, and Jesus calls his followers to that kind of faithfulness. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, God is faithful by whom? That is, by the faithful God, you have been called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ. And this kind of faithfulness, this kind of faithfulness that, that does not do away with these laws, but it circumvents it. I was talking to, to Frank the other day after the service, and he said, Boy, if we just all understood this, these kind of things, there would be no murder, would there? In the very same way, if we understood the heart of God's faithfulness and righteousness in the law, if we could grasp onto them, there would be no adultery, no divorce, no lying either. Again, these laws are not done away with in Christ. They're not negated. They are fulfilled because Christ is the one. He is that ultimate example, the one person who has lived this faithfulness before us. And he calls us by his grace, by his mercy, to follow him. And we don't follow him alone. We do it in his strength. And we go back to the Beatitudes. We realize that we have failed and that we are poor in spirit. We do mourn over our own unfaithfulness. We are meek because we don't have a leg to stand on because we've all failed. And we hunger and thirst for the kind of righteousness, not of the scribes and Pharisees, but the kind that Jesus is speaking of here. And the promise is we will be filled. By the grace of Jesus, may we exhibit faithfulness in word and deed. May we exhibit truthfulness in our dealings, integrity in our relationships. May we not seek a loophole or an easy way out. Human tendency is to excuse, normalize, and explain away sinful behavior. But kingdom obedience requires faithfulness that displays God's faithfulness.